Welcome to The Heart Zone, featuring George Cannon. This broadcast is a time of teaching and encouragement from Kerwinsville Christian Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us on the web at www.kerwinsvillechristian.org. And now for a message from The Heart Zone. Here's George Cannon. Folks, what I want you to do right now is I want you to get your Bibles and I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to focus on verses 7 through 15. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. We've been working our way through Galatians. We've entitled our series, Accepted, Experiencing His Grace Day by Day. And we've been looking at the whole issue of our spiritual lives from Paul's perspective. Because you remember, He's writing this letter to the Galatians, and it was written sometime after he was there, just a short period of time, and already since he left them, he established them as a church, he brought them salvation, they responded, and then as he's left, others have come along, and they've imposed on the believers there a system of works, the Old Testament law, in hopes that they would quote, carry out the law to be accepted with God. And so Paul's been writing them about this, letting them know that what's going on is wrong. And it's only going to lead them to spiritual defeat by trying to keep the law. And you and I can relate to that. Because I want you to think for a moment. I know it's very true in my life. You know, I came to Christ in 1985, 35 years ago. And when I came to Christ, I realized that I needed Jesus. I realized who he was. And I committed my life to follow him. I realized it was nothing that I could do to gain that salvation. That he did it all for me. And by faith, I was saved. And I began a new life in Jesus. By faith. And what happened, though, is that Just shortly thereafter, realizing the faith and I was wanting to live for him, I had others come alongside of me and they weren't weren't being bad. Some of them didn't even realize what they were doing, but what ended up happening is I began to become a part of the church culture. The church culture then began to add things to me and my faith that I needed to do in order to be accepted with God. And when you fail at those things, you become defeated. And I became defeated. You've become defeated if you think back in your own life. And you realize that now you're trying to do all of these different things to feel accepted with God. And this is what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about that these folks have come along and they have distracted you. And that's what we're going to look at here today, because you and I are looking at this and we're thinking, I know I have, I've thought, man, how do we get back to that original point? How do we start again? How do we get to the place where we are looking to the Lord, where we are looking to him to guide us through this? How do we get there? So let's look at this together. We're going to look at the scripture, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Here's what Paul says. 
You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. All right, now here's what we're going to do, folks. We're going to take this section of verses and we're going to go through it and guide us through it. And from it, we're going to see how you and I can start again. What do you mean start again, George? Well, start again where we realize I'm just trusting Jesus in this life. There's nothing I can do. He's done it all for me. Just like you had that attitude when you got saved, that's the attitude you and I need to have when we're talking about living our Christian life for him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to basically divide the passage into three sections. We're going to see, first of all, a great start. We're going to start out that you start out great with salvation, and you know why, because it's by faith. Then we're going to see the distraction. And then finally, we're going to end up with what true freedom is, because that's what we need to be living in. All right? So let's look at this together. Let's talk about a great start. He starts out in the passage very clearly saying, you started well. He says, you ran well. Now that is pointing back to a past event. He's talking about when they started out, they did well. Why? Because they knew it wasn't what they did. It, they knew it wasn't what they were accomplishing that gained their faith their salvation. It was what Jesus did for them. They started out with faith. You started out well. Think about it. I think about when I, that April of 1985, I recognized there was nothing I could do to gain his acceptance. There was nothing I could do to gain his love. He did it all for me. I just reached out by faith and grasped it. I reached out because that's all I could do because there's nothing I could do. I started well. You started well. Whatever that moment was when you accepted Jesus, you realized you needed him. And you reached out to him. You started well. That was a great start. Every one of you who are saved, you had a great start. Because you started out not looking at what you were doing or what you have or don't have, what you've accomplished, you were looking at what he did and you grasped it by faith and you trusted him and you believed in him. You started out well with faith. But here's what Paul says. But you got distracted and it wasn't the Lord. You got distracted and it wasn't the Lord. Look at what he says here. You ran well, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him 
who calls you. So somewhere along the line, somebody came alongside of you and I and began to tell us that these are the things that you need to do in order to be a good Christian. These are the things that you need to do in order for God's favor to be shown to you. These are the things that you needed to do in order to be accepted with God. And you know that happened. It doesn't even have to be an outright someone telling you do this, although there are people who will do that. It's subtle. It's a whole part of the church culture. But here's what Paul's saying. You got distracted by that. And listen, that stuff didn't come from the Lord. The Lord didn't come to you and say, thus shall you do, do this. He didn't tell you that. The church culture told you that. It's a distraction. And when you started out great by faith, you soon got distracted into looking at what you and I were doing by our efforts. Are we giving enough? Are we praying enough? Are we reading our Bible enough? Are you doing this? Are you not going here? Are you not doing that? Are you dressing this way? Are you carrying the right Bible? Is your hair the right length? I mean, let's go on. There's just rules after rules after rules. And the reality is, that's all a distraction. That stuff didn't come from the Lord. It didn't come from Him. You started out great. You and I started out great. But we got distracted. Found ourselves living our lives by our effort. We say, well, George, wait a minute. I thought you were telling us here today how we can start again. Well, we're going to get there. But you've got to recognize some things. You've got to recognize some things. So here's the, here's the thing you need to see. It's the issue of the distraction. First of all, he starts out with really a, something we sometimes quote. If you know your Bible, you hear people quoting this. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here's the issue. Subtle errors lead to widespread corruption. Now, let me just start for a moment, because sometimes people say, well, yeah, I understand legalism. Well, yeah, it's not just that simple. Everything starts out with good intentions. And it usually sometimes it happens from, from a pulpit, from a preacher, down to some senior saint in, in the church, to some other well-meaning, respected person, and, and they begin to subtly communicate, this is what you should be doing, this is not what you should be doing. And then those things become sacred laws. And then those sacred laws are what's used to keep everybody in conformity. And what ends up happening then is that those who fail to keep that begin to think of themselves as not being accepted and loved by God because I didn't do this or I couldn't do that. You see the pattern there? It starts out that way. It starts out with something that somebody recognizes for their spiritual life, their walk with the Lord, they need to do this. And then they communicate to others that you need to do that now. And then before you know it, we've got people who are defeated because they can't do it. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, the others weren't meant to do it. Just the one that was told originally by the Lord to do it. He was supposed to do it for whatever reason. But when you impose that upon others, it just leads to spiritual defeat. But see, this is how it happens. Subtle errors lead to widespread corruption. He uses the illustration of, of leaven or yeast. You know, one of the things we love in our house is when Lori makes a bread. 
and she's got the flour and she adds a little yeast to it and they mix it up and the yeast, that little bit of yeast permeates the entire dough and then produces that wonderful French bread that she makes or that pizza crust. Well, it's because that little bit of yeast. That's what errors do. Coming in, even here, listen, in this politically charged world we live in, sometimes meaningful Christians will say things that they shouldn't say, but it ends up having devastating effects. Like what, George? Well, let's take the political situation. When you come in and you say, well, a good Christian wouldn't vote for that person. Well, you know what? That might not be a wrong thing to say, but it's an error. When you say a good Christian, you're making an assumption there. And, it, and even though you're not saying that you are ultimately saying that has something to do with whether or not you're saved. And voting has nothing to do with whether or not you're saved. Being a good Christian has nothing to do with where you go. Your salvation has nothing to do with that. See, subtle errors lead to widespread corruption. Here's the next thing I want you to see from the passage. We see it in verse 10. Those who introduce error will be judged. Look at what he says. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. So he's saying, I'm confident that you're going to get your thinking right. And then what, here's what he said. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment. Whoever he is. Paul doesn't even know who this guy is that's coming along telling them that they need to keep the law. But here's what he's going to say. That guy who's imposing the spiritual bondage of keeping these rules, of living by effort, that guy's going to be judged. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You and I need to be careful with what we impose on others that would ultimately distract from the truth. Because those who introduce error will be judged. And we know that. Are you saying we're going to go to hell, George? I didn't say that. It's just saying that they're going to be judged. They're going to be held accountable. You and I are held accountable. In fact, the Bible says that, right? Jesus said every idle word will be brought into account. Do you even recognize the silly things you've said this week? You probably can't even remember them, but you're going to be held accountable for them. Those who introduce error will be Judge. Now, here, here's the other thing I want you to see about the distraction. He makes it very clear here, verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He's saying, look, if I preached the law, then I wouldn't be suffering. I would be accepted because I'm promoting effort and keeping the law. But he said, that's not what my message is. My message is faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And because of that, I'm being persecuted. So because of that, here's the thing I want you to see, is that if I preached effort, then the offense of the cross has ceased. What does that mean? The cross becomes meaningless. Look, folks, if your acceptance with Jesus has to do with whether or not you're keeping your devotions or giving enough or serving enough or voting the right way or all of this other stuff, what music you listen to, how you dress, what version of the Bible you use, if your acceptance with God was based on any of that, then the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, is meaningless. Do you understand me? It's meaningless because it goes back to your effort. 
But we already know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by faith are you saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Effort for acceptance makes the cross meaningless. Here, here's the other thing I want you to see. Effort for acceptance is no different than pagan practices. Whoa, where are you getting that? Well, look right here, the next verse. It's actually a very harsh statement. I'll, I'll explain to you what he's saying. He says, I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Okay, what's he talking about there, George? Well, he's referring to those who are troubling them about being circumcised. And really what he's referring to here then is that they would go the next step and castrate themselves. Now that would be significant to those Gentile hearers there in Galatia. Why? Well, in Galatia as well as most of Macedonia, they had those who followed Sybil. Sybil was a god. And the priests of Sybil, one of the things that in their frenzy of following Sybil, they castrated themselves to be accepted by their god. And so this is the point Paul's making here is that when you talk about doing something to gain acceptance with God, you're no different than those who follow pagan rituals and practices, who are trying to manipulate and gain acceptance with their gods. He says that's why he's saying, I wish they would go the next step. They're trying to gain acceptance. They're no different than the pagans. And this is the distraction. It makes the cross meaningless, we're no different than those who are trying to gain their acceptance by doing all the right things. But see, now I want you to understand true freedom. This is what Paul's wanting you to understand. See, how we get back to where we started again is we recognize it's not by effort. It makes the cross meaningless. It's no different than any other religion. But faith in Jesus Christ is where you start and that gives you true freedom. And that's where our focus is going to be on verses 13, 14, and 15. So let me read those verses to you again. And then I want to just give you two points here. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Liberty. Freedom. When you got saved and you started out believing not because of yourself, because you realized there was nothing you could do. He did it all for you. When you got saved, before somebody else came along and said you needed to do all this other stuff, when you got saved by faith, he's saying here, you were called to spiritual freedom. Look what else he says there. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. All right, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two things that I think are going to help you to understand true freedom that you have and get you and I back to that point of starting again by faith, not by our effort. Okay, here it is. You've been set free. To live for others, not yourself. Paul says, verse 13, you've been called to liberty. It's not a liberty to do whatever you want to do, but it's a liberty to, to live for other people. 
You've been set free. So you've been set free. And listen, that freedom isn't a forgiveness card you keep in your wallet. Get out a free jail card. You know, my forgiveness card, I whip it out. I can do whatever I want. Some people have that attitude. Well, I'm forgiven. I can do what I want. Forget that. That's not the issue. You don't go and just do whatever you want to do. That's what Paul's saying here, because you have the freedom. Actually, you have freedom, but your freedom is constrained now by living for others, by loving others. So I don't do things now, not because some preacher told me I can't do it. I don't do things now because of love, because I love God and I love other people. That's the issue here. That's true freedom. That's what binds you. It's not, am I doing the right things because church culture told me that. No, it's that I'm doing things because of love. Love for God, love for other people. All right, so you have been set free to live for others, not yourself. Your freedom is restrained by your love for others. Look, Paul talks about this as well. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. See, you might be saying, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want to do, George. Well, that's true. You're free. But your freedom may actually create problems for somebody else. And when you do that, you're actually not loving them. Do you know what I mean? Now, here's the thing. If I love my brother, I'd give up my freedom for a moment, right? That's the loving thing to do, right? This is the issue. He says here, look again, look with me at verse 15. These verses come out. So you're not constrained by laws, but you're constrained by love. See, this is the issue about living by faith, living in grace, is that I'm constrained not by somebody telling me how to vote, not by somebody telling me I need to have my devotions to be accepted with God. But because I love God, because he loves me and I love other people, that now constrains me from what I do. Look at what he says again. For you, brethren, have not been called to liberty, only don't use liberty as an opportunity of the flesh. Don't use liberty as just because I can do it and it satisfies me. But what? Through love, serve one another. You know... I think back, one of the most powerful things to me is you see it in the news often, you hear about it in the community, maybe you see it on Facebook, somebody who's going through cancer, and because they're going through chemo, they lose their hair. And then you'll see a picture, especially when it talks about young kids, other kids who are there with them, they cut their hair off to be in solidarity with the one who's sick. Why did they do that? Love. Love. This is what we're talking about. This is what guides your spiritual life. Love. Love for others. Love for God. You quit doing things because you love them. That's what he's talking about here. Not because some preacher said it, or some church said it, or, or, or whatever. It's because of love. Love for others constrains your freedom. That's what he's talking about here. All right, so here we are. We remember when we got saved and we were wanting to serve the Lord and we started out great by faith, recognized there's nothing I can do. He loves me. I'm responding to that love. I accept him. And we want to get back to that point because we got distracted along the way by all the effort stuff. And here's how you start out again. 
You recognize the freedom he gave you, but it's a freedom that's constrained by one thing only. Love. You don't do stuff because you love. Because you love your family. You love your spouse. You love your kids. You love your neighbor. You don't do stuff because you love God. Do you understand? That's, that's more powerful than I don't do stuff because how would I look to God in the church? That's not the issue. So let me give you two thoughts to kind of wrap this up here. Here's the first one. The joy of your salvation can be restored. All right, right now, some of you, you are defeated. That's putting it mildly, right? You're defeated because, all right, here's why. You messed up. Maybe you made a mistake. And now you think God doesn't see you the same way. You're defeated. And you carry the scar of whatever it is. You fill in the blank, whatever it is. And it's because somewhere along the line, you embraced an idea that God's acceptance of you was based upon you doing the right things. Well, let's just be honest, folks. Nobody can be perfect in doing the right things. That is the testimony of Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that not what Romans says? Now, I want you to hear me. Then if that were true, then none of us have any hope. But we know that that's not true. We have a hope. Our hope is in who? Jesus. So here you are. You can have the joy of your salvation again. Why? Because you realize that it's not because of your efforts, not because of your failures, and they are many, but it's because of Jesus. And you can start again. And how you do that is you turn your eyes off of you and you put them onto Jesus. Do you understand? You turn your eyes off of you and you put them onto Jesus. And you realize that he set you free to live for him. He set you free. So that brings me to my second point. Live a life of faith that is guided by love rather than rules. Live a life by faith that is guided by love rather than rules. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? He's confronted by a teacher, a scribe, teacher of the law, and they asked him what the greatest commandments were. Many times Jesus was confronted by that. They wanted to look for something to accuse him about. And Jesus responded, I want to share with you what Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40 says. It says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to talk about following the law? Then let's live our lives constrained by the greatest of all things, love. Love for God. I'm not going to do that because I love my God. Love for others. I'm not going to do that because I love my family. I love my spouse. I love my neighbor. That's what's important. Is you have freedom. And you can start again and be what God wants you to be. And you're guided by love.
That, my friends, is spiritual living. That leads to the victory we all want. And that's what I hope for you. Thank you for being with us this morning. And we trust that today's message has been both challenging and an encouragement to your heart. At Kerwinsville Christian Church, a warm welcome is always extended to you. We're located at 700 State Street, Kerwinsville, Pennsylvania. For more information about our ministry, please visit us on the web at www.kerwinsvillechristian.org. Now, on behalf of George Cannon and the entire church family, we hope that you will look to the Heavenly Father in all that you face this coming week.